Okay, good evening. I'm broadcasting live from British Columbia, Canada. Joining with the ardent group of online meditators that have assembled at meditation.sirimangalo.org. And embarrassingly, my name is in orange. I've spent all day today with meditators, but actually I've spent most of the day talking. And being mindful. There's nothing like being with meditators to remind you that even when you're talking, you can be mindful, no matter what you're doing. So, I've been with meditators since 8 a.m. this morning and then constantly up until 10 a.m. and 10 after 10 when uh, I realized I was late for our study session. So I heard, hurried back here to the basement to go online and study the Visuddhimagga for an hour. And then we skipped our Pali because I had to go eat lunch. And then back to the meditation hall for more talk till 2 p.m. And then back here to the basement at 2 p.m to talk to children. There was supposed to be a room full of children. Turned out a room full was four. We had four children, but I spent over an hour talking to them. They were a tough sell. But I think I, in the end, I, ex I was able to give some idea of why they might want to practice meditation. I asked one of the girls, what, was, what did she want out of life? And I said, but what I mean is, what do you wish? Not what is realistic, not what you expect, not what you settle on in life, knowing it's possible. If anything were possible, what would you wish for? And she said, surprisingly, it surprised me, she said, uh, freedom from suffering. I mean, it shouldn't really have surprised me, but... But no, coming from a, a kid, I would have, I thought, oh, I was expecting a career choice. But freedom from suffering, that's commendable. And she said, but I don't think it's possible. And I said, okay. And we worked with that. And I said, well, what if I told you, what if I asked you, what if I told you I could provide you with freedom from mental suffering? And I started to explain the difference between physical suffering and mental suffering. She seemed to get that. <clears throat> and so I showed them how to meditate. I said, well, close your eyes. And I said, sit still and don't move until you feel pain. And so they sat for about a minute. And then she said she felt pain. And so I had her note to herself, pain, pain. I think she understood. I think the four of them 
understood what I, I mean. I was talking. We talked for over an hour, but this was basically what it came down to. And so I tried to provide the concept of the difference between physical pain and mental pain. And we talked for we talked about heaven. We talked about how you can relieve physical pain when your mind is calm, and how if you're born in heaven, then you don't have the physical pain of being born a human, and so on and so on. It was interesting. One one of the more interesting parts of the talk was I asked her um, something about her her her. her I said. Uh, I asked them if they showered, and she said, yes, she showers almost every day. And I said, why do you shower? You need to keep clean. And I said, so what about your mind? Is your mind clean? Do you keep your mind clean? She said, yeah. I said, how do you keep your mind clean? And she said, by thinking positive. So it's this idea of positive thinking, that positive thinking is the answer. And so we talked about it for a bit, and then I said to her, I, I started describing a person who didn't think positively, but had good thoughts, means thought to help people. Positive thinking is, I can succeed, I can win, I, you know, I, I will do it, I can, I can, kind of, I'm going to succeed, I'm going to pass the test. It was funny, we talked for quite a while, but... Um, came down to, I said, describe the person who had good thoughts. And I said, how does that compare in your mind to someone who has positive thoughts, who thinks positively? She said, yes, the first one, the one who has good thoughts and helpful for others, who is kind and compassionate. And I said, it's actually quite a difference. So you see, it's a different, it's two different things. You know? Thinking positive was one thing. Being positive is another. You know, Being a positive being good. Anyway, so that lasted until after three, and then right back to the meditation hall where I was due at three, but I think I actually got stopped to talk to someone else to answer their questions. And then from 3.20 to four, I gave a talk. And then at four, I answered more questions. And then I discussed some things and sort of we were chatting for a while about how the course went and so on. They charged money for the course and I said, I think if it's if they're going to charge, I wouldn't come in the future. I think I have to make a statement because it didn't really feel right. Even though the money has nothing to do with me, it's still kind of like people were paying to come and see me. That's kind of what it was like. So express that and they agreed the people I talked to were in agreement they didn't agree with the charging but it's you know and they're on the board so they were going to look into that Oh, I know what it is. I'm on this guest network, and I bet it's going to ask me to type in a password again. Maybe. Maybe not.
No, no, I'm not even connected to the internet here. Ah, here we are. Okay. This isn't the ideal internet setup, that's for sure. Live stream connected again. Okay. So audio is back if you want to switch back to that. I haven't even started yet. I'm just complaining about my day so far. <laughs> Not complaining, but giving excuses as to why my name is still in yellow, orange. I haven't done my online meditation today. We have an interesting quote today about inclination. How someone who practices the Eightfold Noble Path inclines towards Nibbana. The Buddha often, uh, in on more than one occasion, talked about a tree, how a tree inclines in one direction. And if the tree is inclined towards samsara, then, it, oh no, sorry, if the person is inclined towards samsara, then when they die, they are reborn. If the person is inclined towards nibbana, then when they die, they're not reborn. So it's kind of an encouragement for us, the idea that it, it does make a difference. Your practice does make a difference, even though you can't see it. You can envision yourself as inclining in one direction. It sort of speaks of our habits, how our behaviors inform our habits and cultivate habits, become habits. If we are mindful by habit, that's an in, becomes our inclination. If we're inclined to do good, you know, if we do good often, we become inclined towards goodness. We're born in heaven. If we practice samatha meditation, we are inclined towards tranquility. Then we're born as a Brahma. If we do evil deeds, we're inclined in that direction. Then we'll be reborn in that way. If we do human things, if we act like a human being, ordinary, living our life, then I would think chances are we'll be born as a human being. It seems reasonable. The whole idea of karma reincarnation that people have so much trouble with, it's such a reasonable system. It's such a reasonable set of beliefs, if you want to call them that even without getting into why it's the most reasonable and why it's actually the default, what we call the null hypothesis. It's funny, I laugh because I, I, was, I caused so much outrage. There was this group and I suggested that rebirth is the null hypothesis. It didn't go over very well. But that's what I believe. That's my opinion, my view. Anyway, I don't have anything to say about this quote besides that. Maybe someone else has some comment to make that will inspire me to say more. But otherwise, if anyone has any questions, I'm here to answer.
even though my name is in orange. Define what constitutes a Sangha. Hmm. Well, I think technically there are only two types of Sangha. The Sangha is the group of monks, and the Sangha is all enlightened beings from Sotapanna on up. So when we talk about lay, a group of lay Dhamma practitioners as being a sangha, it's a bit of a loose interpretation and it's not really how the texts use it, I don't think. I mean, I suppose there are usages where sangha just means a group of people or a group of individuals, but in a Buddhist sense, you don't call that a sangha. You know, you wouldn't, it wouldn't have been referred to as a sangha of lay people. There are only two sanghas. There's the sangha of monks and then there's the sangha of enlightened beings. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't adapt the term and refer to you all as lay people. Another thing you could say is those people who are practicing to become a sotapanna, so they're not uh, a sotapanna yet, can also be considered to be Arya Savaka, like they're students of the Arya, even though they're not enlightened yet or Aryas, Aryas Pugala yet. They could still be considered sangha, savaka sangha. In a sense that they are people tr striving for sotapanna. I think that's reasonable. No, these words were all adapted by the Buddha, so you can adapt them as you like. Null hypothesis. What is the null hypothesis? A null hypothesis is the hypothesis that nothing happens. Suppose you do an experiment with a idea that something might happen, like if I mix these two chemicals, there'll be an explosion. Well, the null hypothesis is that if you mix those two chemicals, there is no explosion. That's the null hypothesis. You can look it up on Wikipedia. I'm sure it's a bit more nuanced than that, but that's basically it, that nothing happens. It's when you hypothesize that nothing is going to happen. Nothing, no change will, and, and I qualify it by, by emphasizing the fact that what it really means is no change occurs. Sure, something happens. You mix the two chemicals, the two chemicals are still there. Something happened. You've got two, a mixture of two chemicals. Nothing out of the ordinary, nothing changed. And that's important, an important distinction. So at death, were nothing to change, the mind would continue on. Do you see where I'm going with this? It is the null hypothesis that the mind should continue on after death. Clever, isn't it? I thought it was kind of clever. They certainly did. The group I explained this to didn't. One man didn't. He, got, he exploded. <laughs> No null no hypothesis for him. What are the differences between working on mental pain and body pain? Uh, I wouldn't, I, I think we don't, 
um, put any emphasis on working on on body pain. It's not our interest. In fact, you could even say we don't put emphasis on quote unquote working on mental pain, because by working on you mean getting being becoming free from. And that's not how the practice works. The practice works by seeing clearly both physical pain and mental pain. It's not about working on anything. It's like when you say working on, it's like something's wrong that you have to fix it. That's not the way meditation works. It's not taking. It's not under the under the uh, assumption that something is broken. Even though theoretically we have this idea that something's broken, our practice is not undertaken in that uh, light it's undertaken for the purpose of understanding seeing learning about studying the knowledge of what is right and what is wrong comes as a result of our study but our study is is objective so we are objective about bodily pain we're objective about mental pain and we start to change as a result we, we experience less mental pain and we stop being upset about bodily pain. Just how important is posture while meditating? You mentioned our cushions should get lower and lower with time, but I find my posture getting poorer the lower I get to the floor. Yeah. Yeah, so there's something to be said about a little bit of cushion under your rear end to keep your posture up. I don't know that that's really truly the case. Because, I mean, I can keep good posture sitting on the floor, so I don't see why it has to necessarily mean bad posture just because I'm flat here on the carpet. But in Vipassana, posture isn't really all that important at all. My teacher sits like this. He's 91 years old, and he's probably the most awesome monk I know. And he's... Uh, <laughs> the worst posture of anyone. I mean, I guess at 91, it's it's a different story because old people and, you know. But still, it obviously is working for him, even at this age. Um, you know, the Buddha said, if you read the Satipatthana Sutta, here, let's go to, let me go to the Pali because I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly. Luckily, now that we're on the computer, I can go to the sutta. Here we say, Gachami, Gachanto wa Gachami Tipajanati. When walking, he knows I'm walking. Tito wa Titomi Tipajanati. When standing, one knows I'm standing. Nisino wa Nisinomi Tipajanati. When Sitting, one knows I am sitting. Sayanova sayanom hitipajanati. When lying, one knows I am lying. And then it says, Yata yata wa panasakayo panihito hoti, tata tata nang pajanati. So, yata yata means however, means in whatever way, wa or, or in whatever way, asakayo, the body of him. Of, of that person, panihito is dispossessed, is 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 set, you know, whatever position is in. Tata tata nang pajanati. One knows that in one knows clearly pajanati, fully. It in that way, 
meaning whatever posture you're in. He literally says that, yata yatawa, however the body is disposed, panihito. So even if you're not walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, you could be crouching, leaning, slouching, whatever. Then you know it as it is. That's the only important thing. Can you talk about smiling and one's demeanor? Sometimes people say I should smile more, but that expression doesn't come naturally to me. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's not about the smile. I would say that enlightened ones do smile. The Buddha smiled, but they smile for peculiar reasons. A Buddha smiles when he sees something uh, remarkable. For example, a pig. <laughs> Buddha smiled when he saw a pig. But it turns out the pig was once a Brahma. So he found that remarkable that a Brahma should then be reborn as a pig. So he smiled at the pig. I just bring that up to say, well, smiling is a weird thing. I don't suppose if you smiled at pigs, people would be, would be contented. They want you to smile at jokes. They want you to be happy. People like other people to be happy. It's one of the annoying, <laughs> annoying things about people is they want you to be happy. And then you just say, it makes you feel less inclined to be happy. I'm kind of kidding. Smiling is a sign of happiness, I think, yes. Uh, but, you know, we're not practicing happiness. Sometimes the Buddha said it's better to practice properly with tears in your eyes, uh, weeping, crying, moaning, wailing at the hardship of it than it is to be happy practicing in the wrong way. We're not practicing happiness. Better to be miserable doing the right thing because it is not happiness that leads to happiness. I'll say it again. Happiness does not lead to happiness. In other words, happiness is not useful in any way. It is goodness that leads to happiness. Therefore, goodness is useful. Goodness is that which has benefit. And if you focus completely on goodness, happiness is what will result. It just might take some time. Most of the experiences that arise during my meditation are physical, few mental experiences. How should I adjust my practice according to this? I, don't, I mean, if you really don't have any mental discomfort, practice longer. Do long sessions and practice all the time. Do meditation during the day. It sounds great. It sounds like the Narahad, really. I wouldn't say there's much problem. Just say pain, pain, itching, itching. It may be that you're not clearly aware of all the mental stuff that's going on. You have to take that into account. Maybe you're just missing all the mental stuff. But if we take what you say at face value, then that's fine. You know, it's, it's a sign that you don't have many problems to deal with. And you don't have much wrong with you. Maybe you are already partially. Maybe you're already a sotapanna. Maybe you're already an anagami. 
I don't know. But when it does come up, then, well, you need the meditation to help you deal with it, if it does come up. Could you speak a bit about dealing with loneliness through meditation? And do you ever feel lonely as a monk? I don't have time to feel lonely. I'm surrounded by people and I do too much. But no, absolutely not. I'm not a lonely. When I was young, I was very lonely. So it may be unfair to say. Um, so I got over loneliness at an early age. Maybe. Dealing with loneliness. Well, loneliness is silly, right? I mean, there's no rational reason to be lonely. Loneliness is a desire. It's based on the desire for friendship, for worth, you know, having people esteem you, having people uh, think highly enough of you to want to be your friends, that kind of thing. Wanting friends, wanting recognition, wanting people around you, I think. It comes from low self-esteem maybe in in cases so i mean these are all states of mind that you can deal with through meditation there's nothing special about them you just practice according to the booklet that we have up at the top and you'll be less plagued with loneliness i think i guess another thing is people seem to think that loneliness is valid if you're lonely that's a valid emotion that you should re remedy by getting friends or something it's not that case. People are think that being alone is a sign of problems, is a sign of defect of some sort. Why are you alone? Why are you so alone? If you live like that, someone said to me once, a monk, he was, he was we, were, we were arguing, he was very upset at me, and he said, if you continue like this, you're going to be alone. <laughs> That was kind of funny because, like, well, didn't the Buddha tell us that we're supposed to be alone? So it's like, thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, wouldn't that be wonderful? It was also, it was a funny, like, looking back, it was a funny. I was, I was quite shaking. I was here, he's yelling at me. He said, You need to have love. He's a metta. He's a metta. A meditation teacher has to have metta. He was scolding me. I'm like, Okay. It was a funny conversation. He was quite quite angry, actually. My mother experiences pain, but as yet does not practice meditation or fully understands. I gotta deal do something about this scroll scrolling. Does not understand the Four Noble Truths Eightfold Path. How can I help her without pushing Buddhism meditation? Well, all, all you can do is tell her that it helps. Tell her that meditation is something that could help her with her pain. It's up to her if she decides that that's worth her time. You know, you're, we're not pushing things. If she doesn't want to do it, you know, fine, power to her. We're not on this earth to make everyone meditate. It's not your job to make her meditate. You say you provide a, it's like you provide a therapy option. It's up to her if she's going to take it. You open the door to her. That's how it works. I know as your mother, it's often 
we want them to practice and we wish that they would practice, but that's not how it works. Wishing doesn't make other people want to practice, makes them actually turn away from it. I noticed that you no longer wear glasses. I got the laser surgery when I was in Thailand. Is that wrong? Well, in my defense, many monks in Thailand got it done. It's a thing in Thailand, forest monks especially, because when you're in the forest, it's glasses can be awkward. If you lose your glasses in the forest, it's dangerous, snakes and so on. So I thought, well, why not get rid of it once and for all? So I got the laser surgery in Bangkok. I know it was an expense, but my lay, my lay supporters paid for it. When I meditate, I feel the left side of my brain is not working like having lack of energy. Is this mental or body pain? Doesn't sound like pain at all. It sounds like a physical sensation. Feeling, then you would say feeling, feeling. Uh-huh. Right, Fernando, not noticing things properly. So that's it. I mean, it's easy to see the physical ones. Without a teacher, there's a lot that you miss. A teacher will often keep you in line. So you can see how that works. I just reminded you, and it helps you to see things, points out things, yes, yes. I'm not being completely clear in my mind, so it helps you see things you, you may be missed. Yeah, this was a nice session. Lots of questions. Hope we keep this up. Uh, tomorrow I'm off, I think. I uh, think. No, did I say I'll be back in time? Maybe I will be back in time. Let me see here. If I can find my schedule. Arrives at 6 p.m., and that is Eastern time. So, hey, is anyone in Toronto want to give me a ride back to Hamilton? I don't know how I'm going to get back to Hamilton. That's the thing. Maybe I'm walking. Maybe I'm... What am I going to do in Toronto tomorrow? I don't have a ride yet. Anyone? Is anyone in Toronto? No. Doesn't look like it. Do we have anyone even in Canada here? Mason? No. Well, I may have to get in touch with someone in Toronto, but it's my guess that I will be back in time for 9 o'clock tomorrow evening, hopefully 8, so I can actually do meditation with everybody. Should be. If I get in at, what was that, 6, 5, 6? Six? 6. Then I have seven, eight. Yeah, be cutting it close, but I should get there for eight.
anyway i think that's it for tonight no if you have more questions save them for tomorrow thank you all for tuning in have a good night <laughs>